Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Frederick Reinhardt, who has over 35 years of experience as a technology transfer executive at institutions such as the New England Medical Center, the University of Michigan, and Wayne State University. Fred is on the board of directors of the University of Iowa Research Foundation, and he was previously chairman of the Michigan Biosciences Industry Association. Currently, Fred is a senior advisor for technology transfer at UMass Amherst and for the UMass system, assisting on special projects and policy development. He has been with UMass since 2010 as a consultant and was previously the UMass Amherst TTO director. In 2015 and 16, Fred served as the president of Autumn, and he is also a registered technology transfer professional and a graduate of the University of Michigan with an MBA degree in new product development. And with that impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Fred. Well, thanks, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's great to be here and have an opportunity to talk about one of my favorite subjects. Yeah, I'm really excited. I think this is going to be a great episode. And thank you again for taking part in the podcast. As I mentioned during the intro, you've been in technology transfer for over 35 years. You have experience at four different institutions. You've been the president of Autumn. You've been involved in public policy issues, not only for Autumn, but also for the Council of Government Relations. So given this tremendous experience, can you share your thoughts on how technology transfers evolved over the course of your career? Sure. That's a great question. And I'll just start out by saying that Everything I say in this podcast, these are my own opinions, not those of UMass Amherst or any other organization. So, but go back to the beginning, which is for us in this profession, it's, it's 1980 with the passage of the Bayh-Dole Act. And I think it took a few years for uh, things to get geared up. A lot of universities, there had been a few that had been doing things before 1980, uh, maybe four or five, but I think it took a few years for the universities and teaching hospitals to gear up and start uh, their own tech transfer offices. Uh, and so I came into the field uh, in 1985, and I would say that my experience and the evolution of my own career does in some sense track uh, what happened over the next actually 40 years now. So I like to break this down into phases and these are really uh, anywhere from seven to 10 year phases. And I tried to give them some uh, catchy names. So I'll just mention the the five phases that I'll talk about. First one is getting to know patents and partners. Second one, are we professional and sophisticated yet? Third, saving the world with startups. Fourth, success and other misfortunes. And five, 
reality is so real. So at the beginning, uh, I think we were all consumed with building an infrastructure. We had to learn a couple of key things. We had to learn about patents, and this was really new for most universities. And I would say that there was a little bit of whipsawing going on with this, and that is uh, some schools uh, were not about to waste money on patents, and the, your your tech transfer office was told, uh, go out and find a licensee, and then uh, we'll give you the money so you can file a patent. Well, anybody in the field knows that's a non-starter. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't work that way. No. And at the other extreme, some schools with nice, big, fat budgets went out and patented everything. And that was equally incorrect. I mean, just pretty soon you start looking at your costs of office action responses, uh, maintenance fees, et cetera, et cetera. And and you really are uh, getting your general counsel and your leadership uh, worried because you see the numbers uh, of expenses going up. Secondly, we had to learn about our partners. And we had to learn, first of all, which industries were the ones that are most receptive to licensing technology from universities and which weren't. So a, an example of the latter is uh, we learned really quickly that you don't go licensing technology to the, uh, the big three auto companies and you don't license too much to certain engineering uh, companies. However, uh, biotech, pharma, any any company that has an actual product that goes in a bottle that a patent would cover, it's going to be more receptive. The second thing we had to learn was to trust each other. And uh, there's a, there's some funny stories that I recall from this, and, and they weren't always funny, but they were, it was instructive. So when we first started approaching companies with our technology, they absolutely had no idea how to view us. They were used to people walking in off the street and saying, I've got this great idea. And then uh, the company might say, well, that's interesting, but we're not going to pursue that. And then a few years later, a product shows up and next thing you know, uh, the inventor feels that they were taken advantage of and they, they file a lawsuit. And so when we first started approaching companies, they thought of us in that way and they had us sign, uh, they wanted us to sign uh, agreements that said, you know, we can use whatever you're giving us, you know, we whatever's not in, a, in an issued patent, you can have whatever. So they, they were very uh, unused to working with us. And on the other side, we were uh, not used to them. I used to work with a couple a couple of attorneys and one in particular was so uh, sure that we were going to get shafted by these prospective licensees that, you know, we came up with some uh, burdensome requests. We were very suspicious and that's just not a um, a good way to run a, a program. So we learned. So as the next uh, phase, are we professional and sophisticated yet? Uh, yes, we were on a learning curve. Um, 
more and more people joined the profession, and Autumn in particular was really instrumental in helping people share ideas and share knowledge and 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 train and, and you know come up with some standards or you know a basis for convening uh, people and ideas. And so, you know, when we first started out, people came in with pretty odd backgrounds. I actually, I had an MBA in new product development and marketing. I had worked in some industries, but I was not a techie and I wasn't a lawyer. Uh, I would say that as it's evolved, you'll see, you know, people that come in with true industry experience or they come in with uh, legal patent experience, especially, um, and, and other you know, technical experience are are really the ones that are going to be uh, in this profession and be successful. So, it as we became more sophisticated, that's the kind of people that were were in, you know growing in in their careers. Uh, so, at you know, in a few years after maybe I joined in '85, I would say most universities had a TTO set up and most were engaging with industry. So the next phase is saving the world with startups. Now on the good side, on the pro side, startups are a really a good model for when you're dealing with raw technology. We found that you could approach all kinds of companies with your ideas and your your patent applications and and they were just too early. They were such a raw straight state. They were not proven. They were not reduced to practice. So having pushing uh, these technologies into a startup that would further develop and prove out, uh, prove them out was, was a good, interesting approach that, uh, you know, resulted in us getting more licenses and more things going. And then, you know, the model is that those startups would then either license their technology, sell their products, or be acquired by a a bigger company or or investors. So it's good. Um, the downside of it is that, as anybody that's done startups knows, they're very time consuming. They're fraught with conflicts of interest. They're they don't pay their bills, and the timelines are really long. They're they're somewhat much more risky than an existing company. Very much so. To work with them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that we found that was unfortunate is that when states around the country uh, had downturns, their governors and legislatures turned to us and said, you know, you need to do more startups and save our state. And oh, and by the way, we don't want you licensing any technology outside of our state. Uh, so both were uh, false premises. You, you know, technology should go wherever it needs to go, and startups uh, can save a state, and it's going to take like 20 years. It's just a very long, long, uh, long haul. Next is success and other misfortunes, and I think that uh, as we became more active and more and more deals started getting done. Uh, Bidol and technology transfer offices came under attack, and we'll touch on some of these things. But you know, the uh, 
free agency idea where you turn all your technology over to the inventors and they knew best what to do with it. We'll come back to that. Uh, accusations that we're creating patent thickets that are uh, undermining and slowing uh, innovation. Uh, conflicts of interest that uh, faculty inventors and universities are uh, creating and getting too close to industry. I mean, it, I go back to the word whipsawing again, that, you know, on one hand, we got to work with industry. And then sometimes you're so successful working with industry that people start to say, gee, you're, um, you're really too tied to industry and this is this is not good academia needs to be independent etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think around this time um federal funding was dropping uh we had the aia with patent law changes that were challenging uh supreme court rulings were hurting you know in terms of our ability to do what we need to do and we're finding out that venture capitalists do not come in early with with startups. And then uh, the last phase, I'll just call it reality is so real. And you had a few blockbuster licenses uh, all over the country, usually with a therapeutic of some sort that, that succeeded. And, and I, unfortunately, that created some unrealistic expectations. You had certain, you know, schools and leaders in schools and even TTOs saying, you know, this is this is where the money is and we're going to go out and make make millions and we're going to save our our university's budget and you know, we're going to do great things and we just have to, you know, do a few more of these billion dollar deals. That's that's not realistic. We had the broadening of TTO roles uh which was important but it does put a a lot of pressure on the professionals. I think the biggest reality check is that there aren't that many big hits and that you often lose money or you barely break even. And that this technology that we're dealing with is very early, very risky. Startups lose money, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say that's kind of a quick overview of how I've seen the profession evolve, Lisa. That's a, a great summary of all those those phases. And I think that last point that you make about the reality is real is really a good one because I think all offices are just hunting for that big hit and they don't know when that might happen and where it might happen. So they tend to file on so much. And like you said, it's so early and it's really hard to evaluate when it's so early on. Um, it, it's a tough It's a tough situation to be in. Yes. Yeah, and we'll come back to that uh, issue of filing early because we're like the first to know about something. And if we had a crystal ball and could see into the future, we would know uh, maybe which things to file on or how to, uh, what is the best commercialization model. We don't have that luxury. We are often faced with a deadline uh, very soon coming up to that we have to file very if we're going to yep. have any patent rights. Yeah. yeah. Well, switching gears a little bit, I know you know Baidol is going to be turning 40 in December. 
Last October, Joe Allen, who was a professional staff member on the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee with former Senator Birch Bayh, who obviously was involved in crafting Bayh-Dole, wrote a piece for IP Watchdog where he raised the question about whether or not Bayh-Dole would even survive its 40th birthday. And what Mr. Allen was referring to was some misleading arguments that were made by some in Washington, and he particularly pointed to Senators Sanders, Harris, and Warren regarding the use of Bayh-Dole to break a patent on a drug when it was priced too high. So in other words, using what a lot of people refer to as an obscure section of the Bayh-Dole Act known as marching rights, which would allow the government to march in, break a patent, thereby allowing a cheaper version of the drug to be made by another company. And I know this is an area you've been heavily involved in from a policy perspective. Can you tell us about some of the work you've been doing in this area? Explain some of the proposals that you've seen for using march in rights and where you think this might be headed? Sure. And it's a very serious problem because uh, we believe that I'll just say that many in the in the profession believe that once you do a march in to control a price of a therapeutic that has been in part developed at a university, then you will forever uh, undermine the ability of of universities to work with biotech and pharma companies. So, what I like to talk about with Martin is is some of the myths about about that uh, provision of the law. It is not for price controls. It has several triggers that you could use, and they, they have mainly to do, and these are smart and sensible triggers. One is that our licensee of a technology that's been uh, funded you know, it's been resulted from federal funding. Our licensee is not doing anything with it. They're sitting on it for whatever reason. Either they're they're shelving it because it's going to cannibalize something else they have, or they're just not competent. They've got other, you know, things that are on the front burner. That's one case where it's right to march in. The second case is if you have an important uh, product that that involves, say, public health or some other public uh, urgency or you know situation that, and they can't provide enough of that product, then you can march in and and offer rights to uh, other companies that would would do it. So it's the. The demand for March in isn't based on anything real. It's a political thing. Uh, it's it's really, <laughs> I I call it an attempt to turn uh, biotech and pharma companies into charities, <laughs> and to <laughs> turn uh, the the federal government into a to a drug development company, uh, neither of which are appropriate. So the you know the big myth is is this uh, argument that if there's a drug that's supposedly priced too high, uh, it's unfair to the public because they've paid twice for this drug. And well, yes, the the government did fund some uh, research. Um, the company that developed the product spent 
orders of multiple uh, more more on that. They spend hundreds of times more money than the government provided. So to say they're paying twice is, is really misleading. It's going to be interesting, don't you think, with coronavirus and what happens where this pandemic goes, if, if this is going to start to rear its ugly head even more um, in the next couple months and years as we continue to deal with this pandemic. Are you starting to see any of that being vocalized at all? I have. I have seen a couple of things. And you know, this is an example of um, an extreme health, uh, public health emergency. And uh, if if one, first of all, I doubt that any one company would have a, a monopoly on on a therapeutic or a diagnostic. So I, I think it's not even going to come up. But if that company did have a monopoly and couldn't provide enough uh, product, then uh, in my opinion, Marchin would be appropriate for that situation. Completely agree. Yeah, that's that's what Marchin rights are there for. Just like I think it was a number of years ago, wasn't it? In Canada, there was a question about whether or not there was enough Cipro or something like that. And and the Canadian government, I think, was talking about marching in because they have somewhat similar provision. Right. But yeah. In those situations, completely agree with you. You know, back to our big concern about this is that um it, it, we've done some studies. Ashley Stevens uh, in Boston has, and and Mark uh, blanking on his name from the NIH, uh, they've identified 289 therapies that came out of tech transfer uh, at universities and teaching hospitals, and that's pretty significant number. Uh, you wouldn't want to undermine that uh, by monkeying with the system. No. So the other thing about Marchin that is just completely nonsensical is if you think about the timing, a march-in request, if it were to occur, but let's just say that, okay, we'll, we'll agree march-in uh, is okay if prices are too high and good luck telling, deciding what's too high, what's a fair price. But let's just say a march-in request was appropriate. Well, that request would not occur until the product is unreasonably priced for sale. So we're talking about way down the line. We all know that it takes many years, up 10 or more years for things to get to market. So you're not going to be able to tell a company that they're unreasonably pricing their product for quite a while. So then if you gave a license to other companies, it would take them years to catch up. Therefore, a competing therapy would not arrive quickly. Secondly, the original licensee will have created additional patent rights, know-how, trade secrets, whatever, that they want to uh, have to justify the huge expenditures that they're, they're risking. So if you're forcing additional licensees to jump in, it's not going to provide, uh, they're not going to have the necessary combination of IP protections and and it won't result in early introduction of, of competing or less expensive products. Absolutely. So our feeling is um, Marchin will have no positive effects, but it will have one substantial and provable negative effect, and that is to uh, result in a tainting of any technology that involved federal funding, and companies are not going to take a risk that when it when they're at the other end of the pipeline, when they've introduced a product, they have to answer to some 
a congressional committee that says that their prices is, is not appropriate. So yep. I'll just point out that NIH has rejected all March-in requests to date. Uh, and the endlessly repeated claims made by certain critics that Marchin is allowed for price controls uh, does not make that true. Yeah, agreed. And that's a great segue, uh, critics and attacks on Baidol. Um, I'm sure you're aware of the attack that Rebecca Eisenberg and Robert Cook Deegan made in a paper published 2018 entitled Universities, the Fallen Angels of Baidol, where they state, and I'm going to quote here, Although universities help get the Baidol Act through Congress, the primary goal, as reflected in the recitals at the beginning of the new statute, was not to benefit universities, but to promote the commercial development and utilization of federally funded inventions. In the years since the passage of the Baidol Act, universities seem to have lost sight of this distinction. Their behavior as patent seekers, patent enforcers, and patent policy stakeholders often seem to work against the commercialization goals of the Baidol Act, and it is difficult to explain or justify on any other basis other than the pursuit of revenue. So I'd be curious to your thoughts on this, this paper, and, and they have several other attacks in that paper as well. Well, I have looked carefully at that paper, and I'll, I'll make a few comments um, and then get into a little more detail. It's certainly a thought-provoking paper, uh, Tech transfer offices and university leaders should read it. They should think about the criticisms, and some of those criticisms are absolutely valid. Uh, and I'll, some examples are that they've cited, and I absolutely agree with them, that uh, inappropriate patent extensions by one university, reach through royalties and uh, by another one, you know, when their claims and their patent application really didn't, it, it covered maybe a target or a way of uh, screening compounds, but they didn't actually describe the compound itself. Uh, that's that's not appropriate. Yep. And that patent went down in flames, too. I think the one you're referring to, University of Rochester. Yeah. And it should have. I mean, what, one thing I'll say about their criticisms is that all I can step back and say is, well, the patent system works. And and some of the things that universities tried to do that were shot down should have been shot down. Two more examples of things that I, well, three more that I think were inappropriate are alleging a university research exemption. There is no such thing. And if you really want to have a research exemption, you need to go ask for it and get it in writing. Working with Bonafide, and I and I use that term, you know, in, in an ironic way. Patent trolls is not appropriate for universities, and the the most recent one, which I believe has been rejected, and it should have been, is selling sovereign immunity to companies to uh, fight against IPRs yep. and and inter partes reviews. So I agree with the authors that. Focusing on money and revenue is not the right thing. Autumn has tried to counter that over the years. Uh, one one thing we you know we do these annual licensing surveys and then we list all the universities and, and other research institutions and we used to uh, list them in order of the amount of 
licensing revenue they got. So the, you know, the big winners were at the top. Well, that was like pretty dumb putting a target on your back. So we stopped doing that. The other thing that Autumn did, which was absolutely critical, is to create the Better World Report or the, the Better World Project, which takes the focus off of money and licensing, and it puts it right where it belongs on public benefits of of the technologies that are have been deployed in both the U.S. and around the world that, that help people. So university leadership needs to focus on public benefit. If they think that, that licensing is going to uh, save their budgets, then they're, they're really going to be sadly uh, disappointed because that's not what we do. That's not what it's for. And it's, a, it's also a very risky uh, activity. You just, you know, once we've licensed something, it really is out of our hands. And, and if there's going to be a lot of money made, that's going to be a function of markets, the, the effectiveness of the company, how much, you know, investment they can generate, uh, and just their strategic advantages uh, in the market. So that said, I disagree with most of the rest of this <laughs> paper. Um, I'll just say that these two authors, researchers, uh, have been flogging the idea that Bayh-Dole is bad and has horrible and unintended consequences for years. And yes, there have been some, and that's going to happen when you have something new and people are, are finding their way. But I still look at them as, they just remind me of, of you know, they, they won't like this, but a little little dogs nipping at the heels of somebody that's accomplishing great things. And so statistics don't lie. I know they'll argue with this, but if you look at the autumn 2018 annual licensing activity survey, the universities collectively did 900, no, 9,350 licenses and options. And, and by the way, most of those are to small companies, and I'll come back to that later. Uh, 828 new products were introduced. That's significant. That's huge. Yeah. And these are products that are, they're going to be more likely to be high tech. They're going to be products that are more likely to be offshoring. Uh, you know, they're going to discourage offshoring production because there's a patent covering these products and you know that's you just can't ignore that and then 100 and uh, 1080 new startups and 6500 uh, of the tech transfers academic startups are still operating that's a pretty significant number why are they still operating well number 1 they're based on technology number 2 they they presumably have some patent and intellectual property protection. Number three, they are typically companies that are operating with the benefits of of coordinating and consulting with and working with talented researchers at universities and teaching hospitals. The other thing I would point out in terms of stats is that the Biotechnology Innovation Organization has done reports for the last number of years uh, where they look at 
the effects on the economy of licensing by academic institutions and research institutions. And so the latest uh, report that came out last year says that since 1996, licensing has led to $1.7 trillion in gross U.S. output. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's phenomenal, and it's supported up to 5.9 million person years of employment. Well, and that's the name of the game, isn't it? Yeah. So I'd counter what these authors are saying with a couple other questions. Number one, where is the hue and cry about these terrible universities and tech transfer offices demanding this tax that that isn't necessary, it doesn't help commercialization? Anybody investing in a, whether it's a startup or a large company or, or universities which are now putting up more money uh, in in the form of gap funds to further develop technologies inside their university before they attempt to spend them out or license them. Anybody in that situation wants IP protection. If you watch Shark Tank, and I do all the time, yes, I'm here. One of the first <laughs> one of the first questions they ask is, "Do you have any? Do you have a patent over this?" Well, you know, if you're going to be in the game of technology-based business development, you're going to need IP. Um, the other thing is, they, they, the authors seem to think that um, public benefit is somehow uh, separate and, and excludes the idea of, of money coming in. And they, they really are tied. And I use the example of Northwestern's Lyrica. So if you're looking at it as a glass, glass half full, you say, Lyrica, man, that has helped so many people who have, you know, uh, this diabetic neuropathy and, and my own wife takes it for, uh, for fibromyalgia. And that, that's incredible. Millions and millions of people. But if you're looking at the glass half full, which I'm afraid this is what the authors do, they're saying, look at all that money that Northwestern got in in royalties. They got a billion dollars. Isn't that terrible? And so I just, I guess my main comment uh, is if Baidol, if, as they claim, these two authors, if Baidol is working against the commercialization goals that it was set up to help, if it is doing that, it's doing a really bad job at it because this sort of commercialization is actually happening. You don't have companies, you know, petitioning the government to to stop this change by dole. You you might have a few in the areas of, say, electronics and IT, and I understand that that's a certain, you know, for them the patent system is is maybe a little bit. Uh, it doesn't help them as much. It, it actually they can view it as impeding. So, But again, if Baidol's working against commercialization, it's it's not doing a very good job. Well, thank you. That was, I think, uh, some good commentary on the paper. Okay. And, and then I noticed that in their concluding thing, they just claim that universities do good, do good work and more revenue allows them to do more of it. But revenues from patents remain a small source of revenue 
for universities overall. Can't argue with that, but that doesn't mean you should stop doing it. And then they go on to say, when do the benefits of university patents out ju uh, justify the costs? So a couple of other points I'd make is that um, when we do license agreements, and since we're doing almost 10,000 a year, something's going well. What the, I don't think the authors realize is that every license or an option is an opportunity for a relationship between academia and the private sector. And that is the key. And I groups like NACRO, I like to point out that Network of Academic Corporate Relations Officers have been uh, stating, and now Autumn as well, that the main thing is relationship building. And that's, that's the key. So a license is a seed that can, um, you know, stimulate interactions between, you know, the key interaction between the scientists at the university and the scientists at a company. Second thing is that tech transfer offices need to be supported with money because guess what? They do a lot more than just licensing and bringing in revenue, albeit a little bit of revenue. They assist with uh, getting non-disclosure agreements done, material transfer agreements done that this helps, you know, collaborations occur, interinstitutional agreements with other universities that you know, facilitate progress. They support student and faculty entrepreneurship. We manage conflicts of interest issues. We oversee export controls. And in general, we do engage in relationship management and all around, you know, both within the university and outside. So these, these authors have cited some extreme examples they're true examples, but I, I don't think they are representative of what's what's really going on. So, no, thank you. That that is a really good input on that paper because yeah, it it really makes some pretty uh, harsh attacks. I think on on universities and by doles, they're not the only ones who've made criticism. There are a variety of other attacks that have been made on on universities. How about the one that I've read about uh, university patents standing in the way of improving global health, particularly in poorer countries? Okay. And I, I think uh, groups like Autumn have been addressing this for, gee, I, I would guess, 15 years now. Um, and uh, you may know, uh, Lisa, that Autumn, Autumn does have a global health toolkit that provides some guidance on this, and it includes sample licensing clauses. Um, I would say that uh, some of this is political. Uh, and one of the reasons I say that is because uh, if you look closely at it, you will see that 90% of the drugs in the World Health Organization list of essential medicines are already off patent. Yeah. So patents are way down the list of why drugs and therapies aren't getting too poor or disadvantaged populations. There's many other challenging factors. You know, is there a cold distribution chain for certain therapies and vaccines? Is there, are there medical professionals, enough of them in a country to, you know, to, to address uh, needs? So I think that university tech transfer offices avoid filing patents in developing countries and 
often would forego any royalties that could develop in those, you know, could result from sales of products in those countries. Um, sometimes our licensees do insist on filing in in some of these countries, and we can't exactly negotiate a, a and then finalize a license agreement if we're telling the potential licensee that we're not going to do what they they feel is needed. And I I'm not sure of all the reasons they're asking for that. I think that in some cases they're looking at billions of dollars in investment. If you look at Tufts University, they're saying two point six billion dollars to get a drug to market. I, you know, you can argue that up or down, but I'll I'll take away a billion and it's still a lot of money. Tremendous. So yeah, and so they don't, you know, you're going to go to your upper management to spend money on something and they're going to say, "All right, let's not take any chances. Um I want you to file everywhere and then we can always back off, but I we can't file, you know, 3 years later when it's too late." So it is not always in our control to tell them. Um, another thing is that there's a big distinction between certain diseases in the develop, developing world, like Chagas or uh, Leishmaniasis, uh, versus the conditions and, and diseases that are uh, treated in developed countries. I would say cite the Gates Foundation approach to this problem, and that is they'll, if they've funded some research uh, that results in, an, in uh, a new drug or something like that, they will do two kinds of licenses. One is for uh, royalties and use in, in developed countries for a certain therapy, and another is uh, for a different, let's just call it indication or field of use. Uh, that would be appropriate and relevant in a, uh, a you know a poor country, and in the latter case, it's pretty opened up and basically free. And you know they've they've addressed this problem, and I think they've come up with a, a fairly reasonable uh, solution. Because if you have a dichotomy here, of a, are you in a profit-making activity or are you a charity? And you better decide. And, and you know, companies aren't dumb. They know this is something where we're going to focus on profit. And if, and if it's not, then we're going to go into it with our eyes open and we're going to give this is a charity. And, you know, that's why you see them working with um, – Comp- uh, groups like BioVentures for Global Health, you know, and they, I like their approach because they work constructively with industry. They don't try to get them to, um, you know, have a confusion about whether they're in making profit or they're a charity. Yep. So, and I, I guess the last thing that I would say is that it does raise the question of who should develop new therapies that are relevant for the global health challenge. And I think that foundations are stepping up and governments are stepping up and, and, you know, even universities are stepping up. But let's be clear that, you know, is, is it in this category or that category? So, Absolutely. That's a really good point. Another attack that I've, I've read is, well, universities shouldn't be enforcing their patents. What, what's your thought on that, that attack? Well, if you're going to operate in the commercialization 
realm and you're going to deal with uh, high-tech products and industries, you're going to have to have patents and you're going to have to have other forms of intellectual property protection. And so you're either in it or you're not. And I would point out that universities don't file patents just so that they can brag about how many they have in their portfolio. They file patents because somebody wants that patent. And and I'll go back to what I pointed out before. A lot of our, most of our licensees and optionees are small companies. And small companies need all the help they can get. And if they can uh, rely on a patent for strategic defense, that they want it. And so our licensees want patents. If If there's a product that is going to take a lot of investment to bring to market, they're going to want a patent. If you are a university that is spending a fair amount of money on, on gap funding to bring technologies further along, you're going to want a patent because you're going to package everything up and then try to find somebody interested in it. So I don't think there's anything per se wrong with filing patents. And if you're going to have a patent, then you have to defend it. It just, it just goes with the, the, the system. Patents are, if, if you're not going to defend it, then you shouldn't even file a patent application. Exactly. So I, I, yeah, I don't, I just don't understand the concept of, you know, that we shouldn't file patents. And one thing that, uh, well, I, I think when we little, when we get to discussing platform technologies, I'll, I'll point out something about filing patents that I, I don't think the authors of this article have thought about, but. Yeah, and actually, that's a good segue to, to platform technologies. Um, they're in that same vein that universities shouldn't enforce their their patents. They even go back further and say, "Well, you shouldn't even be filing on platform technologies." And, and they point to things like the Cohen Boyer patents on basic recombinant techniques at uh, Stanford and UC System, and they even point to some of the Axel patents that Columbia University filed on for introducing genes for foreign proteins into eukaryotic organisms. And both of those were multi-million dollar uh, revenue generators for their respective universities. So be curious on your thought about that as well. Well, I'll say that there are probably uh, three or four key reasons why uh, it's appropriate to file patent applications on a platform technology. One is that, as we discussed earlier, these technologies are very, very early. We can't predict what's going to happen. We can't always predict their value or where they're going to go. So you really have no choice in many cases but to, to file on it. Sometimes it's actually better to have one company distributing uh, a new technology than, than many. Uh, if it's a new mouse model or something like that, then why not Taconic Farms or Jackson Labs? You know, they can get it out to everybody and maybe they will uh, add value by making sure that the quality control is there and and that it's very easy to get things out. And so in a case like that, they may want a patent and they may want an exclusive license. Um, but I think that 
what people may not understand about the patent system, and you as a patent attorney would, is, is that there is value in setting up an IP benchmark of both inventorship and the claims. And it's, it's a lot easier for the world to understand what you have uh, by looking through a patent than trying to parse through your publications. Absolutely. So the authors of this article worry about patent thickets and the, the so-called uh, tragedy of the commons. If, if we file a patent application on a platform, at least everybody knows what we have. They know the, the breadth of our claims that have been allowed and issued. And they know that if they take a license, they have freedom to operate. And companies want freedom to operate. They don't want to look over their shoulder and, and wonder if they're going to get sued by somebody. They they would rather pay a small price to, to know that they've got freedom to operate. So I just view filing a patent application as creating a valuable and useful benchmark that people will then build on. Absolutely. Another point is that patents, because of their very nature, teach, they teach the details of how to create an invention. And that in itself is useful. And, and again, you don't want to have to read through all a, a publication and try to find this narrows it down. It's very, it's very clear. And I like to say, uh, in terms of licensing, if you've ever tried to license copyright, I find it to be a nightmare because if you have a, a copyright that's been developed over years with different people or different companies or whatever, good luck figuring out what's a derivative work and what isn't. And and getting a grip on the extent or the boundaries of the rights is to me a nightmare whereas a patent it's right there it's in the claims and if you if my name is on that patent it means i contributed to at least one claim so if you do it right the cost of of a license to a platform technology and the transaction cost of doing the license is low it can be low maybe uh you might even want to use IP as a tool to have an advantage or protection in international trade. I don't think that's been explored. And I guess my final comment is, are there really that many complaints about this tax that they point to versus the benefits of seeing how it's done and and being sure that you have a, a freedom to operate? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think those are all really good points. And as you said, you know, it's a lot clearer, you know, to add further developments and follow on technology using a patent or a patent application where, you know, that trade-off for the monopoly is clearly describing your invention and enabling one skilled in the art to reproduce it once that patent term expires, whereas trying to go through publications is, is a really difficult thing to do. So I think you raised some excellent points there. And with when you file a patent application, you're going to cite all the relevant prior art and you're going to cite that patent. And then everybody can see how you came up with something useful, non-obvious or, you know, and, and novel as compared to that 
that particular patent. And I, I think, again, I think it not only gives people guidance, I think it really makes a patent thicket easier to negotiate and understand. It provides clarity. Absolutely, absolutely. Any other attacks that we haven't talked about that you're aware of that I might not have asked you about that, that you can think of? Well, again, I think there's been some whip sawing. You know, you, you're working, you're not working well enough with companies. Uh, they're going to other countries because they're easier to work with. And then, so next thing you know, we're told that uh, you're too close to these companies and they're, they have too much influence over your university. They've given you all this money and, and, uh, you know, now you are beholden to them and it, it's not consistent with Bidol or Bidol is contributing to this. But I think the main things are what we're talking about with uh, Bidol March in. You know, I'll point out that Bidol has been reviewed recently and there have been a number of changes that are going to be made and they they really don't, they're useful changes, they are improvements, but they don't strike at the heart of the Baidol concept. And I, I think that's good, particular making it clear, we hope this is what comes out, that it makes it clear that Baidol margin is not for you know managing prices. Not to say that this isn't a big problem and it needs to be addressed, but this is not the way to address it. Absolutely. So it sounds like you're pretty optimistic then Baidol will survive its 40th birthday. I think so. I mean, you just look back at the look at the recent stats and and the activity. Uh, it's pretty impressive, and you still see other countries uh, copying it. I think the ones that have not copied it haven't done as well. But to me, it's regarded as a success. And if you compare it uh, the situation to what was happening pre Baidol. There wasn't much. I mean, yeah, the government owned the the IP rights that were developed at a university, and government is not really doing. They they never did much with those. And even when we give our confirmatory license rights back to government, there's so few examples of them actually using it. So you know, government has other purposes. So Baidol put universities and, and professional bodies on the ground that are paying attention to this. We have an incentive to make things happen. Ideally, you're measured on the deals and the partnerships that you create, not on the money that results. But it, you know, we're we're right there and we are aware of inventions that are made and we start thinking about those and how best to commercialize them. Uh, so, you know, it, it doesn't make a lot of money, but that's not why we should keep doing it. Absolutely. Switching gears, you touched on an issue a little earlier that I want to explore in some more detail now, and that's this big push by certain foundations for what is being called free agency for university inventors. Can you go into that in a little bit more detail? Sure. Uh, and 
thankfully, this is somewhat of an old old news now because I think it's been rejected. But it's just an example of what what happened as we became more and more successful and started doing more startups. And it's inevitable that somebody thinks they have a better way to do it. So, you know, without I'll try to be tactful and just say it was a dumb idea. It's not very tactful. Uh, it was a, a dumb idea advanced by a certain organization. I'm not going to name that prides itself or did pride itself on stirring things up. And it really didn't have much benefit. The reason is that it was uh, not based on reality. I don't think there was any consultation with leadership in the technology transfer community. But the idea was uh, that tech transfer offices are not doing a good job, uh, and the best way to make things happen is to give the IP ownership to the faculty inventor because they know best what to do with it. They have the most incentive to move it forward, and, and the university tech transfer folks should simply get out of the way. And uh, I'll just say right up front that in fairness to this organization, they were basing this on some examples of, you know, less than stellar behavior or, or uh, operations by certain groups. And, and so it didn't, it, they didn't just make it up, but there were, there can be problems. I mean, it's hard to keep everybody happy, but the idea was that you give it to your faculty inventor, and then they can run with it, and they could take it to one of the, quote, successful tech transfer offices at, and I think the actual examples, if I'm not wrong, were MIT, Stanford, and Wharf, and let them handle it. So they could basically take it out of the university and find somebody that was uh, really good at doing this stuff. So what are some problems with that whole thing? Well, number one, uh, it conflicted with federal law because the invention is owned by the contractor, the university, and the next one in line is, is the federal government. And so, yes, it could ownership could be given to the inventor, but uh, that's only after uh, you go through the process and get get approval for that. But the idea that you can just uh, run with it is, is wrong. Number two, it created huge conflict of interest issues uh, and uh, centered primarily around improvements. So I'm faculty member. I get ownership of this IP uh, that I think I can do better with. I do further work at the university on it, and now there's an improvement, and there's another patent application that's going to be filed. Uh, well, now you have a problem because, um, number one, who owns it? And the university should own it. And number two, is my faculty member running a business out of the university? They've got all these technologies they own, and they're using university resources to develop them further. and and, you know, that's, that's a problem. That's a huge problem. Yeah, thank you. The third thing is that when MIT, Stanford, and Wharf, if I'm correct, uh, found out about this proposal, they actually sent a letter. I'm not sure to who, but they said, 
we don't want this. We we don't we don't want uh you know we first of all we probably we don't think it's appropriate and secondly we don't want a bunch of people coming to us uh, to handle their inventions and I'm sure they have plenty to do themselves. So the problem with the whole free agency issue is that if you have a problem with your tech transfer office, then fix it. Don't destroy the the system and create all these problems. Good universities, good tech transfer offices always work with their inventors as a team. You're not just telling them what you're going to do, whether they like it or not. You are working with them throughout the process. Otherwise, you're wasting your time and they have to be bought in. They have to be part of the the deal because you license technology in form of a patent application, but that's just part of the package. The rest of it is the involvement of the inventors. And if they're not happy and they're not inspired and committed, this technology may not go forward. And I guess my final observation of this is is uh, what what this foundation just kept ignoring, and that is the following. If I'm a faculty member and I think I can do better and I know better and I want to move this forward and I have all these ideas and incentive and everything, I don't need to own it. What I need to do is do my own startup. And it is so much more appropriate that my technology be pushed into the startup through a license than for me to run around the country saying I own this. So startups are, that's what they're for. You know, you, you have all these ideas and, and you have the incentive and, and you want to go for the moon, then do it with a startup. So it, I'd say that that whole free agency thing wasted about two years of, of discussion and our uh, two years of time having to push back on it because it was it was a, a dumb idea to start with and it hasn't gone anywhere thank goodness yeah thank goodness is right because it doesn't sound like it was the best of ideas at all no how about i know you're involved with an organization called nonprofit founders research institutions and you have a leadership role in that can you tell us a little bit about that institution sure it's a it's an initiative we call it NIFRI, that, well, it kind of started out years ago, maybe eight years ago at Stanford, where they're trying to work better, you know, the universities interacting with uh, foundations that are funding research, and it's evolved. I got involved because I looked at the funding trends, and federal funding was going down, uh, industry funding was pretty flat. But the one bright spot was uh, nonprofit funders and foundations that that was going up. And so I said, well, there's where we should um, put some effort because it, we can encourage that and expand that. So NIFRI is an effort that has been uh, involved different universities. It's involved uh, Faster Cures, which is a Milken um, initiative. and Especially, it's involved uh, HRA, which is Health Research Alliance, which is a group of 80 uh, foundations that deal in the medical, biomedical area. And we've had several in-person meetings. We've produced some, some materials. 
we would have uh, done a panel on this at the autumn meeting, which was unfortunately canceled because of the coronavirus. But I'll just summarize it by saying we focus on three areas. Number one is streamlining. Uh, number two is research project support costs. And number three is technology transfer and intellectual property. So streamlining is probably what you'd think. It's a matter of how can we get these deals done, these agreements done more quickly, how can make sure that the the terms and the clauses are going to be more likely to be acceptable to both parties. Can we make the reporting easier on everybody, uh, you know, both for results and outcomes and the financial reporting, things like that. It's kind of a, I'll call it the low-hanging fruit because there really isn't too much controversy about this. If you can make it easier on the foundations, they're going to love it and, and the universities are going to be happy with that. And, and if you can make it use easier on universities, then why not? You know, so it's just a matter of, uh, it's not rocket science. The second area, which is somewhat more problematic, but I think there's progress and that is, uh, the costing, I, I guess it's not research product support costs, it's costing in general, but one of the main issues in, in that, category is is the non-payment or underpayment by these funders of what we'll call facilities and administrative costs or otherwise known as uh, indirect costs. And this is a problem for universities because if, if we're not getting enough uh, F&A costs covered, then you're basically losing money on every project you do. And uh, it's to the point where some organizations will simply not take grants from or contracts from foundations if they don't have adequate indirect cost coverage. Or they're saying to their researchers, uh, fine, you're, you're going to have to make up the difference. And that that's a problem. Or they'll say to the their departments or uh, schools, you have to make up the difference. Um, so we've made progress in that area in two ways. Uh, one is that we're identifying certain areas that are actually in a federal grant are uh, really considered indirect costs, but foundations and, and nonprofit funders will will actually consider them direct costs. So those aren't even an issue that we just have to, you know, be clear about the categories. The other way we're making progress is just getting a better understanding of why these funders have this approach. And, and, you know, they've come right out and said, look, if we, if we tell our donors and our boards of directors that we're giving too much for uh, indirect costs and then, then our donors won't give us money and our and our boards are unhappy. So we understand that. There's a couple of other uh issues that, that come up with this and uh but I, I think that that covers the, the main uh issue. The second thing was that just by defining getting away from the term 
indirect costs or even more horrible is the word overhead. And calling it research project support costs gives foundations and funders like this uh, a little more ability to say, okay, yeah, we'll fund that. Because why? Because when you say research project support costs, you are tying that financial support directly to the project. So if it's a thing that deals with big data and it's really critical to have a lot of computer time, et cetera, you can call a research project support cost and they'll pay it, whereas they might not have if you just said it was part of F&A. So those are two improving areas that I cite. The last one, which is probably more relevant to the people at uh, Tech Transfer and Autumn members is this uh, intellectual property and tech transfer. And, you know, we've broken that down into four key areas. One is royalty sharing and how best to set that up. And, you know, I think there's a lot of education that's needed on that. Some schools still think, oh, that's terrible. We have to give a share of any resulting royalties to if if we licensed an invention, uh, we have to share that with the foundation. Well, guess what? That's probably the, the train has left the station on that, and, and you better uh, focus on how best to do it and how to do it in a fair way. Uh, second area is definition of intellectual property and what's, what's an invention. Uh, that can get down into some technicality. I'll just kind of pass that one. And go on to the next one, which is uh, control of licensing. And well, most funders uh, will let the university or teaching hospital handle everything. There are some issues that come up, uh, and we get back. One of them is our old friend Marchin, and uh, I think the idea that you can uh, have an invention and you've spent money on it, on patenting and handling it at the university and then a foundation would arbitrarily come in in two years and say, well, you haven't licensed that yet. So we're taking it over. That's not right. But even worse is the idea that you've licensed it to a company and the foundation or nonprofit funder comes in four years later and says, you know, you haven't really gotten the product to market. So we're going to march in and take this over. So we all know that's a non-starter that, universities can't license to a company if there's that sword hanging over their head, some arbitrary decision or it's out of the, you know, that a foundation can just decide that you haven't done a good enough job and we're, and we're going to take it back and you'll lose all your investment. That's not going to happen. And the fourth area, of course, is back to global health and uh, in particular, and that is what we call patient access and you know, how can universities and teaching hospitals work with these funders to ensure that uh, the resulting products can be affordable or can be available? Uh, we, you know, we've found, of course, that you can't. We don't have much control over that. We have to work with them. But I think one of the things that they focus on is patient uh, to making sure they have patient access programs where, uh, you know, they've addressed these, these issues.
but it's you know we we've, we've come to the idea that it's really more voluntary so that's that's nifri it, it continues and i think it's a very good thing anything that helps the two worlds understand each other better helps them do more of these arrangements and have them be more effectively negotiated and you know, we all have the same goal which is a successful outcome of some something that's going to yield a public benefit it sounds like an amazing organization really incredible so i thought fred i would for my final question ask you about autumn because i know that's an organization you've not only been an active member of over your course of your career but you've been a leader in it you were a past president so I thought it would be interesting for folks to hear about, from your perspective, its evolution and growth over time, and your, also your thoughts on how Autumn's helped not only U.S. universities, but really it's helped universities all around the world. Sure. I mean, Autumn uh, is the leading global organization that uh, advances technolo- you know, technology transfer and the profession. It has grown uh, lockstep with the number of people over the years uh, as the profession has grown. It has evolved in a number of different ways. It was very small at the beginning, obviously. You know, the first autumn meeting I went to, it wasn't even called autumn. It was called SUPA, Society of University Patent Administrators. It was probably like 200 people, maybe 250 people. and. You know, we were dealing with the early stages of, you know, how do we how do we accomplish this? So we were training new people entering the the workforce in this area. One thing that I think has always been helpful for Autumn is uh, when you're in this field, especially if you're at a smaller university, you have a small office. It can be a little bit isolating and and even lonely and and it's a very challenging job and to go to these meetings and find out that you're not the only one that's facing this it, there's a lot of camaraderie and uh it just helps people uh just feel better like they're they're on the right track or you know if they're not on the right track and how to get on the right track the leadership of autumn and the members have always been extremely generous with their time and their you know ex- sharing ex- experiences uh, knowledge so uh, you know it's critical that in a field like tech transfer that you have some group that is at the center that is doing what autumn does best it's it's convening people for networking uh it's training it's encouraging uh, as it evolved some changes that were made made perfect sense it it started out really just universities and then we allowed company representatives to be i would just call them junior members of autumn and then one day one year somebody pointed out wait a second why are we junior members we're we're your licensees and your your research sponsors. Uh, can't we be real members? And so we changed that and made everybody the same, which was made sense. 
and, and I think the more successful meetings and interactions that Autumn hosts uh, are the ones where you really do have industry folks, investors, entrepreneurs interacting with people at, at the university and, and the teaching hospitals and research institutions. So that, that was critical. The second thing I'll mention is, is data collection. Uh, this was way back uh, years ago when uh, people like Ashley Stevens and others said, well, we, we really got to start writing down, collecting data on what, what we're doing with our activities. And there was some pushback on that because people thought, and in fact, rightly, that this could be used against us. And so I mentioned that one problem of ranking universities in the order of how much they received in, in research and licensing revenue. That was a that was a mistake that we corrected. But data is important, but you, you have to make sure you use it properly. But once we started doing that, uh, it was the most important factor in being able to show stakeholders, whether in state government, in federal agencies, federal government, to show them what we were accomplishing. And it's just incredibly important to know everything about you know, how many patent applications we're filing, how many we're getting issued, how much we're spending on patents, how many licenses we're doing. Are we doing licenses with big companies, small companies, how many startups, uh, how much equity are we taking? Those are all the the numbers that tell you what's going right and in some cases what's going wrong. But you've got to measure and you've got to also define success. So in terms of defining success, we got away from just thinking about uh, numbers and we and get to things like what are number of partnerships, but even more importantly, what are the new products that are coming out and what are the benefits that are reaching society. I think the other big trend was that as we started doing this in the U.S., then Canada was involved, I think, fairly early on. But then it became a question of what about other countries? And they're doing this. They are copying Baidu-like approaches. And don't we have to serve them? And there was a little bit of a challenge on that because at one point, I recall people saying, well, we're doing too much with other countries. This is a U.S.-centric group, and you know we've got to serve our core members. And I think, luckily, we've gotten beyond that. And I think the fact that it's now we have members from many countries and they, you know, I think they would have attended the meeting in San Diego. Uh, unfortunately, they they couldn't. Some of them were already in the air, so they they did get to San Diego, but they didn't get to the meeting. <clears throat> but I think the sharing of ideas uh, with different countries, between countries, has been really important, and uh, it's going to continue. 
uh, and it's very instructive in Ireland and in UK. They talk a lot about knowledge transfer, just transferring knowledge for its sake without trying to license. And I think that is something that we all have to think about. I know this article uh, that we were talking about does mention that, you know, what aren't we disseminating information? And, and yes, that is, that's why universities have a charitable exemption. That's why we're nonprofits because we share. And I think what people forget sometimes is that we can have it both ways. We can file patent applications and then publish. And then our graduates go out into the world and they take all the knowledge that they've gained. So we're constantly disseminating information and, and new knowledge to the world. But we can also do commercial uh, activity, you know, the early stage commercial stuff. I guess the last thing I'll talk about is that the organization has recognized that the roles and responsibilities of of autumn members are evolving and where it used to be we were really focused on transactions you know how many patents did we file how many licenses did we sign how much money did we bring in and now uh, rightly we're talking about you know the strength of our relationships uh, with with companies and and you know how much more you can get done when you have a long-term relationship with the company. We're talking about the importance of entrepreneurship, and it's really interesting that supporting and encouraging entrepreneurship between uh, w- with students actually uh, ramps up the amount of interest that your faculty have in startups. So that's another area. Then. Another expansion of uh, you know what auto members have to do has to do with just industry relations and 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 that uh, compliance that has been a growing challenge because now we're into the whole issue of foreign influence and that tech transfer has to deal with that. So autumns has broadened what it can offer to to these folks. And yet some of us old guys don't want to go too, too far from what we consider our core activity, which is licensing new technologies to existing or new or new uh, small companies or startups. So, but I, I, you know, that's kind of where it's headed. Where's it going in the future? I think that that one's a hard, hard to predict, uh, I, I know it'll continue. I think you'll see some new approaches and, uh, you know, maybe some novel, effective uh, government academia uh, arrangements, uh, maybe some very innovative uh, relationships between uh, industry and, and universities. I do think that the uh, costs of running tech transfer offices is going to be a continued problem, and especially if we're looking at a couple of years of, of recession or worse. Uh, I think it's going to be tough, and you're going to see some universities asking whether they can afford to keep having offices. So I, I, I don't 
think the next few years are going to be especially uh, ideal for the profession. But, you know, we have to keep moving. Yeah, that's all we can do right now in the middle of this pandemic is one day at a time and keep moving forward. And I'm sure Autumn, as a leader in tech transfer, will help offices try and meet the challenges that the the next few years are going to bring because there will be many, as you noted. So, well, Fred, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and and all your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, If any of our listeners want to reach out to you and ask you questions or follow up on some of the policy matters you mentioned, where can they reach you? They can uh, email me at fred at research dot umass, that's U-M-A-S-S dot E-D-U. And that's my uh, University of Massachusetts Amherst email address. And, you know, I'll be glad to talk on the phone, but let's let's screen <laughs> if there's people that want to uh, interact and let's start with the, the email. I will say that for those in the field, I have so thoroughly enjoyed my career in this because it's uh, it's just been so stimulating. You learn new things every single day. You learn new technologies. You learn how to work with the individual personalities that you see in every university. Uh, it's just been so so much fun, uh, and it's been challenging. I mean, it's, you, we don't have a high hit rate, and that's partly a function of early stage technology and how much new technology and innovation can the world absorb each year. And so you do have to be patient and uh, be willing to accept that you'll sometimes do a lot of work and you don't see an immediate result from that, but it's just been a tremendous amount of fun. Yeah. Great technology, great people. It's uh, the people you meet in tech transfer. It's just, it's just amazing. But thank you so much again, Fred. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thanks, Lisa. I've really enjoyed talking about my favorite subject. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.